Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you this morning. My name's, uh, most of you know, but my name's Dan. I'm just part of the, the team here, and it's great to be here to, to preach this morning. This week, we, uh, we're in our second part in our series in Luke um, and Acts, answering the question, who is Jesus? And Matthew finishes off at kind of at the end of chapter 19. We're going to pick up there this morning. So if you have one of your church Bibles, um, we're, it's on page 690, and in a moment, we'll come to read together uh, some of the scriptures we used this morning. Um, but as we read this morning, we're going to come up against one big question, um, which we're going to try and answer in a number of different ways, but it's going to come up over and over again. And the question is this, who has authority? Who's in charge? Who's the boss? Where does submission lie? Who has authority? And actually, um, the, that question, who has authority, is a question which is very fundamental to human life. It's a, it's a question we ask ourselves every day without even realizing it, over and over again. In fact, as humans, we're social animals. And as social animals, our tendency, our natural state, is to find out who's boss, whether it's chickens or dogs or, or chimpanzees or humans. We all, all want to find out who, boss is, who the boss is. You know, when you go into a shop and you want to return that item of clothing uh, to the cashier, you know that the person at the, the normal cashier desk can't do that. So you ask yourself the question, who has authority to authorize this return? And you go and you find the returns desk because that person has been given authority. And authority is one of those things that our children grow up and struggle with and try to wrestle. And as, as a, a new parent, I know the, the, the wrestle between my child and the fact that I have authority and how much she wants to push that authority. I had it the other day, in fact. We were at the dinner table, and she'd already thrown one of her pieces of cutlery, her spoon on the floor, and Daddy had said, no, you can't throw your cutlery. And she had a fork in her hand, and she was holding it out like this. And she gives you those eyeballs, and you go, ah. And she's asking the question, on whose authority do you say no? And she's assessing the situation as well. She's saying, what's the consequence? Is there time out? Is there there other punishments coming? And she looks me in the eye, and she says, well, on whose authority do you say that? And she dropped it anyway, but that's fine, you know. She dropped it anyway. And she was questioning my authority. She's saying, are you the one in charge here, Daddy? Are you the one in charge? And actually, age is an important factor in authority. As we, we grow up, we seem to gain authority. There's something about respect for our elders, especially within family life. And in, in the school where I work, the question of who's in charge or who has authority must be a question that is asked of me maybe a hundred times a day. And it's amazing how children have learned who's boss. They've worked out the pecking order, both on the playground, but also amongst the teaching staff and the, the team, which runs the school. They know that they can play up differently to our lunchtime supervisors than they can to a teacher. They know that they can play up to a teaching assistant in a different way than they can to a senior leader. And they've worked out who's boss. And one of the hardest battles that I have to face at school is is teaching different children that no matter where they are, or who they are, or what their role is, they've been placed in a position of authority. And partly their age and partly their status has given us that. But as humans, 
We want to push the limits of authority. We want to, to find out where the boundaries are. We want to ask the question, answer that question, who is in charge? And of course, we all have authority figures above us, and we have people that we submit to. And our willingness to cooperate, our willingness to submit, kind of correlates directly with the respect, the measure of respect and recognition of the person who is demanding us to submit to the authority. And do you know, Bethy and my daughter, for the most part, will listen to my instructions. She'd recognize now, she's starting to learn that, that daddy is the one who has the authority. And my children at school, do you know, 95% of my children at school, they have a complete understanding of authority and respect, and they show it 95% of the time. But our, our natural human tendency, our default state, and you know what, I, I do this myself almost daily. When someone says, would you mind doing this for me, my default state is to go, says who? Who says so? Who's the boss here? Who's telling me to do this? Because if I don't have to do it, I'll try and weasel a way out of doing it. And so we're always asking that question. And there are, are two problems that we have with authority, which I want us to just to take just two moments to think about. The first one is this, that we bias our opinion based on the corrupt use of authority. Authority in our day and age has been corrupted. It's used corruptly. We look at our governments, we look at our uh, infrastructure, and we say there's people here who are abusing the authority that they have been given. And so when we talk about authority, that bias affects our opinion. And the second thing is our natural inbuilt nature to rebel against authority. We, see it, we walk along the path, and we see a sign which says, don't walk on the grass, and we're like, but why not? Who says I can't walk on that grass? And you step over and you walk on the grass anyway because it's kind of inbuilt in us. And so that's as we move through this passage in Luke, at the end of 19 and into 20, just have those two things in mind, that we bias our opinion about authority based on the corrupt use of authority and based on the fact that we want to rebel against authority. So we're going we're gonna to pick up in verse 45 of chapter 19. And the context is this. Jesus has just ridden down on the donkey, down the Mount of Olives, and he's ridden up into the temple. And it's, it says this in verse 45. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. And as we get into this passage at the end of Luke 19 and into 20, I think there's three different kind of pieces. If you imagine like a chessboard and you, you go and look at that chessboard and you kind of read the situation that's going on, there's, there's three pieces that we need to understand where they're positioned and what's going on. And the first piece is this. Jesus is piece number one. Okay. Um, in terms of his position in Jerusalem, he would have been fairly unknown. Okay, he'd have ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, but he would have been fairly unknown. People would have heard about him. They'd have known about some of the things they've done, but many of them, they would never have seen 
Jesus. And when he came into the temple and he declared that they made to his house a den of robbers, it was quite a significant thing for him. The second group of people would have been the establishment. And this is a whole mix of people in the text. It's uh, the priests. And the priests would have had their position as priests because they would have been born. Their dad would have been a priest, and their dad would have been a priest, and their grandparents, all above. And so they had their position in the temple because of their birth. And then you had the scribes. They make up part of the establishment as well. The people who had their position because of their education. You know, not everyone had an opportunity like we do in 21st century Britain to an education. And so they would have held their status, their position, because of their education. And the final people who make up the establishment are the, the, the leaders, the kind of the local leaders. The lead, they call them the leaders among the people. And then they, they would have held their position because of their status. So the establishment is made up of priests, scribes, and local leaders. All had their, kind of, their leadership thrust upon them. And what's interesting is that Jesus had none of these. He, had, he was a carpenter, from a, not from a, a kind of a, a great birth line. Okay, and, and there was much about him, but Jesus didn't, Jesus didn't have any of these things that the establishment considered important. And as the story progresses through chapter 20, what you see is a growing tension between the establishment and Jesus. A tension that would ultimately end up at the cross. That's, that's kind of where the end game of this story is. But the tension has its roots here in Jerusalem. You see, the, the scribes, the priests, the, the, the teachers, the local leaders, they all wanted Jesus out. In fact, they wanted worse than that. It says that they wanted to destroy him. They wanted Jesus dead. Yet Jesus rode into Jerusalem and he rebuked how his house love how he comes in and he declares in that moment, this is my house, how his house had been turned into a den of robbers. You know, the, the temple was supposed to be the very place where people encountered the presence of God and it had been stolen from them by the establishment. It had been taken away from them. And so Jesus comes in and he declares that I am going to reclaim my house and my people. And he says, what are you doing here? And um, the third group of people is really important in this story. So we've got a tension between Jesus we've got a, and the establishment. And there's, there's a wedge between them which is stopping the, the, the establishment just getting rid of Jesus. The easy solution would just be to bunk off Jesus in the night, to send someone around and make Jesus disappear. But in the middle of the establishment and Jesus are the people. And the people have seen Jesus' authority displayed. They'd heard about some of the things he'd done, and they'd be listening to his teaching. And they couldn't just kick Jesus out, because it says that the people were hanging on every word that Jesus said. They were listening to him. They wanted to hear what Jesus said. And if it had just got rid of Jesus in an instant, kicked him out, there'd be uprising, there'd be anarchy, there'd be a revolt in the temple. And you see, what they want to do, the establishment want to hold on to the authority they've got. They're trying, like a human, na human nature, they're trying to hold on to being boss. And Jesus is threatening that. And the tension is rising, and in between there is a wedge, the people who are actually listening to what Jesus was saying. 
Let's pick up in verse 1 of chapter 20. It says this, One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up to him and said, Tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? You see, we're coming back to that same question. Who has authority? And the establishment want to unhinge Jesus. They want to question his authority. They want to to find a way to undermine the authority in which he came into the temple and declared that this is a house of robbers and I'm going to reclaim it for my own. And so they're asking this, who has the authority? Was it the establishment who over hundreds of years of tradition and ritual had created this temple system? Or was it Jesus who came in? And it's important also to see that this wasn't an innocent question. They weren't actually looking to find out a little bit more about Jesus' authority. They weren't sitting next to Jesus and saying, Hey, Jesus, would you mind just explaining where your authority comes to from? We, we want to really understand it. No, it was a loaded question. It was a, a question full of their malice and their hate and their disgust and their, their fear that Jesus was going to strip away all the authority they had. And, and actually, they wanted to destroy Jesus. And so their question wasn't a... Jesus explained to me, their question was, I'm going to undermine you, Jesus, so that the people forget you, who you are, and so that we can hold on to the authority that we have. And so the question comes out of a position to destroy Jesus. And it says this in verse 3, he answered them, I, will, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why do you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. How does Jesus countered the question posed to him in verse 2. Where does your authority come from? He counters question with question. And his question was about the authority of John the Baptist. He says, is the authority of John from heaven or from man? And, and the, the priests and the scribes, they go away and they start to discuss this. John the John the Baptist, he was, uh, you find his account in the early parts of the Gospels, and he was a, a stranger who emerged from the wilderness. In fact, I'd, I'd be as bold to say that he was a strange man who emerged from the wilderness. He, he ate locusts and honey, and he wore crazy kind of, skin, kind of camel skin outfits, and he came out of the desert declaring that the kingdom of God is at hand. He would have appeared a strange man. He was everything that the establishment didn't like. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't educated. He wasn't a local leader, and he came in, and he started to declare that the authority of God is going to break out in this place, and the establishment were worried about it, and Jesus knew this, and so he asked them the question. He said, well, let's not worry about me quite yet. Let's not worry about my authority, because you have not even resolved the authority of John the Baptist, and the, the, the priests and the scribes, they don't know what to do. They say, well, if I say from heaven, they're gonna, he's going to say, well, well, if you believe that, I'm also from heaven. But if I say from man, the people, here they are again as a wedge between the establishment and Jesus, are going to stone 
the establishment. Because actually, it's already become a huge issue for the establishment. The fact that John the Baptist has come and saying the kingdom of God is at hand. It's become a huge issue. And so how do the establishment respond? They do what politicians do. They avoid the question. They decide not to answer. They say, actually, we're not sure, so we're just going to give a, a, a no comments. And actually, it's a, this kind of evasion of the truth, which highlights to me, again, that they're not really interested on the, in the authority of John the Baptist. They're not really interested in the authority of Jesus. All they're interested in is remaining boss in this situation. It's interesting that Jesus brings up the question of John the Baptist's authority. And for us as, as Gateway Church, as believers, it, it does highlight again the importance of baptism to us. When we baptize people, it's a significant moment in their lives. It's a, it's a recognition that I'm changing the authority of my life. When, when we baptize someone, we put them down, we, they declare that Jesus is Lord. And it's a, it's a switching from your own self, self-made reliance on yourself, I'm the boss, I'm the one in charge, I'm, the, I'm the, the principal dealer of authority, and recognizing actually that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is in charge. And in baptism, we make that declaration. And so it's a place of joyful, fruitful, and costly submission. Three things it should be. And the question of John's baptism provokes strong feelings. The people are ready to stone the establishment. So the establishment say, hey, John's not a prophet. The people are already ready to revolt at that point. They would see it as an act of blasphemy. The establishment wants nothing to do with John, the the stranger from the wilderness. And so they don't really know what to say. They're kind of, Jesus has got them stumped. And you could think at that point that Jesus might wait and say, Lord, I'll, I'll wait for you to come up with some kind of clever comment. But he doesn't. He, he decides to go on the offensive. So rather than let the Pharisees come back and uh, think of a clever response, he decides to go on the offensive. And he does that by telling a story. So verse 9, Jesus tells a story. He says this, And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went to another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruits of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat him and treated him shamefully. And he sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one was wounded and cast out. And then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyards to the others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him on that very hour, 
for they perceived that they had been, apparently been told against them, but they feared the people. We see there right at the end, they wanted, they wanted Jesus out, but the people are what they're fearing. I think there's three things for us to learn from this parable that Jesus tells. Firstly, even though it says here that Jesus told this parable to the people, it was not a parable for the people. It was a parable intended for the establishment. And he is, what Jesus is doing is he's, he's taking a prophecy from Isaiah 5 about a vineyard, and he's repackaging it for the people. And in that prophecy, there is a vineyard which is lovingly prepared, it's cared for, it's tended well, uh, but becomes corrupt and is unfruitful. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, I'm repackaging this story for you. Do you remember that story about what happened there? It's being repackaged for you here. And the establishment is the vineyards. They are the, the tenants of the vineyard there. And they would have known this account, and they would have understood what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying to them, you are corrupt and you are unfruitful. And I'm going to come and I'm going to destroy this establishment. And so it was a story for the establishment. It was also a story of God's repeated and lavish grace. The owner, God in this story, is how the parable stacks up. He sends a servant to the vineyard. Now, in those days, to send a servant or a slave was almost as good as going there yourself. And he sends a, a servant to the vineyard to collect the fruit of the harvest, and they beat him and they send him up. So what does the owner do? He sends another one. And he goes to the vineyard looking for the fruit of the harvest. And again, they, they beat him up and they, they cast him out. And the, the owner sends a third servant to the vineyard. And again, they beat him up and they cast him out. And the owner says, what am I to do? How am I to, get the, to see that this vineyard needs to become fruitful and break away from its corruption? He says, I know this. I know what I'll do. He says, rather than sending a slave or a servant, I'll send my son. Someone who is even closer to me. Someone who is even more precious to me. And you can see the, the, the picture that Jesus is painting through this story. The owner sends his son to the vineyard. And in that moment, the tenants ask themselves the question, what are we to do? The, the son's coming. I know, I know. Rather than lose hold of the authority we have in the temple, we'll beat him up and we'll kill him, and we'll cast him out. This is how the story is stacking up. It's a, a story which was going to happen just a few days after this account in the gospel, where Jesus is, is murdered. It's Israel's story over and over and over again, that even though Israel rejected God, God extends his lavish hand of grace to him and says, you're my people, come back. He extends it again, you're my people, come back. And he's saying to them, look, I've given you time after time after time. And the, the story where he sends slave after slave after a slave is saying, look, I'm giving you opportunity to repent. And then he sends his son. And they come and they, they murder the son. And they cast him out as well. And this is what happens just a few days later at the cross on Calvary, where God the Father sends his son into the vineyard, the earth, and they reject him. 
and they cast him out, and they brutally murder him, and they place a crown of thorns on his head and say, look, we are the ones with all authority, we are the ones who are in control here, and we've even rejected the son that you sent. But the, the picture of God's amazing grace is this, that even in the rejection of God's own son, the grace of God is poured out. Because God didn't send his son into the world to, to have a nice chat with those at the temple. He sent his son into the world knowing that that's what the owners of it would do. They knew that Jesus, he knew that Jesus was going to be beaten. They knew that Jesus was going to be rejected. They knew that he would be hanging on a cross for hours on end until he breathed his last breath so that his hand of grace could work through that so that we could be restored to him. God's story has and will always be about grace. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never crossed that line of faith, you've never said, Jesus, I'm going to to put down my authority and recognize that you are the higher authority here. This is what the, the gospel is about. It's about God extending his hand of grace because as humans, we were sinful beings. We are, we are people who rejected Jesus. And Jesus came and said, I'm going to come into this world knowing I'm going to die so that I can take the punishment for the very thing that you've done. And in this moment of rejection, God's hand of grace is extended once and for all for us. It's a story of repeated grace, and it's something which is on offer to you this morning. God's grace for you. And Jesus turns to the people, and he asks them for a verdict. He said, what then do you say? And they say, surely not. Surely that's not the case. Surely the the, the tenants wouldn't even murder the son. Surely that's not going to happen. And what Jesus is doing is saying, look, this is a warning for you. This is a warning for the people. Don't do what the establishment have done. Don't do what Israel has done time after time after time. Don't reject me. Don't throw it away. Don't let your misconceptions about authority kind of ruin my authority. Don't let your belief that all authority is corrupt ruin the fact that Jesus is the ultimate authority. He's saying, don't let the fact that your natural state is to rebel against authority rebel against me. That's what Jesus is saying. He's given them a warning. And it's a warning for us as well. Let's not reject the authority of, of Jesus. And as, as Jesus tells this story, as he tells this parable, he references two really key passages for us this morning. The first one is Isaiah 8, verse 14 to 15. It says this, And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both, the ha- both houses of Israel, a trap and a stair to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, and they shall be snared and taken. The natural human tendency is to want to claim authority. If we're told to do something, our response is always, says who? It always says who. And the establishment turned to Jesus and says, says who? Says who? They want to expose him as powerless, but he turns the table on them. The establishment rejects Jesus precisely because he threatens their authority. 
And He does the same to us at our attempts to be Lord of our lives. He, he wants us to reject those and fall on Him. The second passage he references is Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. In my answer to my question I posed earlier about who has authority, there's, there's two possible answers. Either Jesus is the rock of offense, the stumbling block, the very thing that you reject, or he is the cornerstone, the very thing you build your life on. But in Jesus, you find the all-sufficient grace to go on day by day, recognizing that his authority on the cross was there to pour out peace for me and you. Do you know, authority is about peace. Authority is about establishing peace. That's why we have authority figures in the world, because we have, why we have the police. They're there to help establish peace. Jesus is the ultimate estab- establishment. He's the ultimate peace giver. And when he died on the cross, it was so that we could be reconciled to him and know peace. And so as we come to a close there's perhaps a number of helpful applications for us to think about in terms of who Jesus is. Firstly, we need to be the people who joyfully accept Jesus. You know, there's so much of our lives where we question authority, where we want to, to, to ask that question, says who? And, and often, our submission to authority isn't done out of joyful submission. Often, the way our world is set up is that there is a yoke of authority placed on our shoulders, and actually, we feel it day by day when we go into work. I know that when I go into work, there's a certain, the, well, some of the reasons I do the work I do and the way I do it is because there's a certain measure of yoke on my shoulders. I I love my work and I enjoy my work, but there's a certain measure that people are breathing down your neck and you do things because you're being forced into submission. But we don't want to take that misconception about the corrupt use of authority and apply it to Jesus. Jesus calls us to be a people who joyfully accept him. It's going to be costly, but he asks us to joyfully accept him. And I expect there's a, a number of people here who come into church on a Sunday morning, who submitting to Jesus has been tainted by our worldview of authority. And actually, there's, there's a sense that the joy in Jesus has been stripped out. And it's a yoke on your shoulders. And God says to you this morning, actually, I want you to come and recognize that my joy brings you peace. And I want you to come into my house and recognize that you can encounter the living God and it should be joyful. So if you have no joy in your faith then there's some prayer which needs to happen this morning. The second thing we need to do is to hang on his words. I love that phrase that Luke says as he he writes. uh, It says that the people were hanging on the words of Jesus. Do you know, we're we're so often a people who, who... just don't hang on things. We flip between different things. You know, you're scrolling through your social media account and you flip from one thing to the next and there's nothing you hang on and you go, oh, but the people were hanging on the words of Jesus. If you're, if you're struggling to be fruitful and joyful in your submission to the, the ultimate authority of Jesus, maybe hanging on the words, hanging on the very words of Jesus is what you need to do. And maybe that's a, a pattern which is not part of your daily life and maybe that's something we need to, to pray into and say, look, let's get some structure in place where you can hang on to the very words of Jesus. 
Thirdly, a practical thing for us. We, we are in an establishment. We are under a whole raft of different authorities, whether it's our family units, whether it's our local government, whether it's our uh, national government, whether it's world powers. There are different authorities. And we need to be careful as Christians about getting overly phased by them. Like Trump mania is kind of the thing. He, uh, he's being kind of propagated. And, uh, and I hate the way that every last moment of his movements is being portrayed in the media as either a good thing or bad thing. And actually, ultimately, he's going to end being president. His authority will come to an end as president of the United States. And we can get ourselves hung up on Christians about what we should think and what we should feel. That's, that's not to say we shouldn't have opinions about it, but let's not be overly phased by it. Let's not let it consume us. Let's not let the fact that one person is going to have authority for, for eight, potentially four, maybe eight years in, in the U.S. affect the fact that we have a king who has authority for all time and we submit to his authority and his authority only. So let's not let that unhinge us. And finally, an outward-facing one. A lot of that's quite inward-facing in terms of us and our joyful submission to Jesus. But also we need to recognize that Jesus has commissioned us to go and point people to him. He's commissioned us to go and point people to the authority, to the king of kings. And sometimes when we're not joyful coming here, there is definitely no joy in going out and sharing about Jesus. There is definitely no fruit. Jesus wants us to be a fruitful place. He wants this church to be fruitful. He wants it to be a regular pattern that people choose to to love and accept Jesus in this church. He wants that to be our fruit. He wants us to be regularly baptizing people on a Sunday morning to say, I reject my authority and I put my authority, my my life in Jesus' hands. He wants that to be a regular pattern. And it's one of our prayers as leaders here that we see more baptisms, that we see more fruit of the harvest. And so those four things for us, I think, are helpful for us to to pray into, and I think some people will need to respond to those as well. Just come back to that verse. The the stone that the, the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Isn't that amazing? That even in the rejection of Jesus by the establishment, God extends his lavish grace to us, and Jesus becomes the cornerstone. Amazing that Jesus became the cornerstone. Let's pray. Father, we recognize you as King and Lord and Savior. We recognize uh, you as the one who has all authority. Lord, we recognize that you came into this world knowing that you would die knowing that you would die. We recognize that you did that so that your grace could be extended to us. That we might be a people who don't bend our knee to you out of submission, but instead bend it out of joy. Because you're the King of Kings. Because you're the Lord of Lords, because you're the one who, who broke the curse of sin once and for all, and so we could be called your people. And so we pray for us this morning, Lord, that where we've not been joyful, where our worldview of authority has undermined what we see in you, King Jesus, Lord, would you come and show us joy? 
Lord, would you come and make us smile and laugh and dance in your house. Lord, that we would know the joy of the Lord and it would be our strength, Lord Jesus. Lord, where we've not hung on your word. Lord, where we've just put your, your word, your, your scriptures, your, your very revelation to us on a shelf at home. Lord, will we be a people who hang on your words. Lord, will we be a people who trust in you. And Lord, would we, would we seek to go out and save the lost? Lord, we, we pray for us as a church. Lord, we pray for fruit. Lord, we pray for, for fruit of the harvest. Lord, we pray for, for people to choose to accept Jesus as Lord and Savior and declare him as King in our midst. And we pray for baptism to be an outward sign of that amongst us, Lord Jesus. We ask these things, Lord, in your name. Because you are the authority we submit to. Amen.